welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. but that rather we would see the Trinity as a doctrine, namely the doctrine of God, to delight in and to explore and to wonder at. And I mentioned the very first week that this accords quite well with the idea of classical education, which is about cultivating wonder and about understanding not just things in our mind, but, um, but beholding. Uh, even when we don't have at first the language to describe what it is that we are seeing. And certainly that is the case with the doctrine of the Trinity. The second emphasis that we, uh, that we want to consider is the idea of experience. That these things that we are considering and contemplating should have a direct effect on our experience of God. And in particular, an enriching idea of, uh, of our experience with God. And I trust that your life of, for instance, of prayer, perhaps especially, will be enriched as we understand uh, not only that our God is one, but that he is also three and interrelated. And his threeness, as well as, of course, his unity, is worked out in creation and redemption. And uh, eventually, even though we are building a groundwork, a foundation here in these first few lectures, we eventually will get to the vestiges of the doctrine of the Trinity in all of creation and redemption, such that we can begin to see uh, how the doctrine of the Trinity affects everything, everything. And uh, I think this is where the doctrine of the Trinity really becomes particularly deep, wide, and, um, and really fills us with wonder. So I'm, I'm excited to get there eventually, but we're going to be building some of the groundwork even for that, um, where we're going today 
And in this first lecture of this evening, we are uh, contemplating a second look at what the New Testament reveals about the Trinity. So last week, we considered the Old Testament and its proofs for the Trinity, the New Testament and its uh, demonstration of the Trinity. And so now again, we're looking at the New Testament, but the emphasis is not going to be so much on defending the doctrine of the Trinity from the New Testament or demonstrating it, but rather a little bit more on defining it, all right? Not so much demonstrating it or defending it, but defining this doctrine. And particularly, what are the interrelations of Father, Son, and Spirit? Um, we will be dealing more with the Holy Spirit probably as we get further into our lectures. And so, um, if you'll uh, pardon pardon this, he'll, he'll get maybe a little bit of a sh the short end of the stick uh, to, tonight. Although we might remark that, well, that's okay with the Holy Spirit. He always wants to shed light upon the sun. And uh, that, is, that is certainly true. But we do want to, of course, to give proper glory to, uh, to the Holy Spirit, not only in that he is uh, fully God, but also in that he has his own particular glory, as we will, I hope, at least by the end of our lectures, see. So where we want to start with this lecture is the consideration of the Father, All right, the Father. And uh, as we come to the New Testament, what we see, and I'm um, building on some things I've already stated in these lectures, we see that uh, the Father is revealed in a progressive way you know, from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Now, I mentioned last week that there is some asymmetry. There are some differences in how certain doctrines may be revealed slightly more or slightly less from, you know, as we move from the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the generalization of almost every doctrine, and again, there may be some, some slight differentiation within this generalization, is that you have a movement from less clear to more clear, Old Testament to New Testament. And you can pick almost any doctrine, and that holds true. And that does hold true of the doctrine of the fatherness of God, or the identity of the person of the Father within the Trinity. So there were some passages in the Old Testament that spoke uh, about the fatherhood of God. So uh, I'm not sure if we'll all be turning to these, but maybe, maybe we'll turn to a couple at least. Um, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 is one clear example. And I have been preaching on Exodus um, somewhat recently. And, and here we see that God considers Israel to be his, his son. Exodus 4 and verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, this again, of course, is being spoken to Pharaoh through Moses. Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And there's some, there's some context, some cultural context to this statement in that Pharaoh was considered as, as many of the ancient kings were 
in various empires of old, they were considered gods in a certain sense. And so, uh, you know, just as Pharaoh had his firstborn son and they were considered God and son of, of the God, then in a similar way, although of course we know in a categorically different way, uh, God says about Israel that he is his son. There are, there are a number of other passages that we could look at. Um, maybe I'll, I'll just mention a few if you want to write these down and you can take a look at them later. Deuteronomy 14.2 would be another. Jeremiah 31 verse 9. Hosea 11 verse 1, which is out of uh, Egypt, I have called my son, which is then quoted in Matthew concerning Christ. And then in Malachi chapter 1 verse 6. Um, if I am a father, then where is, where is my honor? Um, is what it says there. Uh, so when you get, so there is, there is the idea of God as father in the Old Testament, but I think it would be fair to say that it is somewhat undeveloped. But what you get when you move to the New Testament, and particularly in the Son, and how the Son speaks of the Father uh, and of God, is a very clear revelation of God as Father. Um, this comes through, you can hardly read the scriptures without noting this, uh, perhaps especially the book of John. Um, but just as a, a few examples, uh, Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, starting, our Father. Our Father. This is how we are to pray. This is, this is normative for, for believers, that we are to address God as our Father. Of course, you have the baptismal formula. We keep coming back to this because it, it plays such a, a crucial and foundational role in the life of the believer, in really the, the, the pages of scripture. Uh, of course, there, there's the baptism into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are into, their, into the, the name. Uh, and then, it, you know, if you turn to the book of John, uh, the word Father is just, is rife uh, there in, in that book. There are 144 results to the word father and the vast majority, I didn't do a count of them, but the vast majority of those 144 um, passages or results, I should say, some of them might be more than one result per passage, uh, refer to God the father. So you have the son speaking about God regularly, repeatedly as father. Now, some of these are references where Jesus is speaking about his father. Um, lots of examples, but one would be John 5, 17, where he says, my father is working and I too am working. Uh, and so you might expect a little bit more that in these instances, as Jesus speaks of his father, that you would, you know, you'd have this title used because as we will see, we haven't yet proven this uh, so much, but we have asserted it that the son is son of the father. Um, he's eternally begotten of the father. You might expect, of course, that he addresses his father this way. But what is perhaps even more interesting or important or foundational is that even when God is speaking in a very general sense, uh, sorry, when Jesus is speaking in even a more general sense of God, he refers to him as father. So let's take a look at one passage where this is the case. Turn with me to, to uh, John chapter 4, verses 21 to 24. John chapter 4 and verses 21 to 24. 
Here Jesus is speaking with the Samaritan woman. And, uh, and he says in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He doesn't say God. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Of course, Christ is the preeminent Jew. Uh, salvation is from Christ. Um, but of course, he is the fullness of all that, that Israel is in the Old Testament. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and, and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And then to the generic, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So here you have the Lord Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman. Uh, she rejects all in their, in their faith. They reject all except for the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, she is, she, you know, she doesn't have the full revelation that, that God gave. She doesn't accept it. Um, she is herself not part of the covenant people. And um, although she will be saved shortly <laughs> through faith in the Lord Jesus, she is not currently. And yet, in spite of all these things, Jesus refers in speaking to her of God as father. Right? So here you have a very strong proof that we should be thinking of God as father and that Jesus reveals God as father in a very, you'd say a very wide sense. Um, now, of course, there's an aspect of this that connects back to creation, right? There's an aspect in which God is the father of, uh, of all spirits, as it says in another place in the New Testament. Uh, we read that uh, in one of the genealogies, I have to think through which, which one it is, whether it's in Matthew or Luke, but in one of the genealogies, it, it traces things back to, um, I guess it'd be Luke, traces things back to Adam, and it says that he is the son of God. Uh, and so you, you do have the idea, even from a creational aspect, uh, that God is father. But even this, you know, even though you can trace these things back to creation, the language really was not there in a strong way in the Old Testament as it is revealed so clearly in and by the Son. Now, why is this important? Why is it important that the Father is normatively God? Now, maybe you can just stop and think about that language I just used, that the Father is normatively God. Um, let, me, let, me, let's, let me take you to a couple of different passages, and then I'm going to explain, if it's not already clear, what I mean by that. All right? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6. So I will, uh, maybe I'll read from verse 4 to get a little bit of the context here. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom uh, we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. All right. 
This idea of the Father being the one God is one you find in several places in the New Testament. Now, there is a sense, of course, in which Jesus, too, is the one God. And yet, we have to pay attention to the biblical language and the biblical balance in which these things are related. So, the way in which the godness of the Son is often related, by no means the exclusive way, is, as it says here in our passage, that he is Lord. But, in regards to the Father, multiple times in the New Testament, it talks about him being the one God often attributing creation to him in a particular way, although, again, not an exclusive way, right? So uh, look with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. There we read, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now understand that, In verse 5, when it speaks about one Lord, it is speaking not about God in the generic. It's speaking about the Son in particular, his exalted state as as not only the Son, but the crucified, risen, and ascended Lord. And then in verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So this idea of one God and Father are linked in a particular way in the New Testament. And that is what I mean when I talk about the normativity of the Father being God. Uh, This this language is captured in the Nicene Creed, which starts this way. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Now, the Son also is the maker of heaven and earth, but they, they do an excellent job, these, these theologians. We'll get into the early church history on the Trinity soon enough. But they did an excellent job of reading scripture and making careful distinctions and, and balancing off the language in a way that really represents the scriptures in a great way. So, the Father is God in a normative way in the sense that because All things come from him, even the Son and the Holy Spirit, although they are equal and fully God, yet it is right in a particular way to think of God the generic as Father. Even though when we speak of God in the generic, we're talking about his one essence or substance. We've we've given you some of that language. We'll get to to it some more under dogmatics. And, and rather than the three persons to which father would pertain, right? There's a connection there in the first person between the generic, the substance, the essence, and the personal. Now, let me tell you three reasons why this is important and good, all right? Because some of you are feeling a little stretched maybe right now, all right? That's okay. Let me, let me simplify things in a hurry for you. The reason this is really good, one of the reasons this is really good, is it actually simplifies the idea of the Trinity. Because, for instance, when you come to reading the scriptures, and it speaks about, for instance, God in the generic, 
you might be tempted to go, oh, who's it speaking about here? Maybe it's speaking about the Father. Maybe it's speaking about the Son. Maybe it's speaking about the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's speaking about God in the journey, like all, all, all three in, there, in the one substance. Maybe it's speaking about the, the essence of God in that sense. And the answer is, if you think it's speaking about God or, or God in the generic or the Father in particular, both of those are probably right. Now, there are some exceptions in which, for instance, the Son is called God, but it is the regular practice of the apostles to use God in the generic and the Father interchangeably. This is because of, I'm using this, this language, the normativeness of the Father as God. So this helps simplify the doctrine of the Trinity for us in that if you're teaching a young one about how to pray to God, you, can, you simply pray to the Father. It's, it's actually quite simple. And if you're thinking of God, you can think of him as a father. And if you're thinking of the father in particular, you can think of him as God in the generic. Because all things are from him, even the son and the Holy Spirit. All right? So this, this, the normativity of God the father actually simplifies the idea of the Trinity for us. Um, the second reason that the normativeness of, of uh, the Father as God is so crucial is because it imparts to us an understanding that God is love and loves us. When we know that God is Father, we're, in it, we're, we're, we're hit immediately, even some of us that haven't had a good upbringing, we, we still have that sense of what a father ought to be. And there's this com communication to us that God loves us uh, which, of course, is stated very clearly in places like John 3.16, but also pictured in places like, um, like the parable of, uh, of the prodigal, where the, the father figure, you know, hikes up his, his, his skirt and, and he goes off and runs to greet the, uh, the, his son who comes to him asking to just be a, a servant or a slave. No, 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 I'm going to reinstate you, even though you've, you've, you've squandered my wealth, even though you've shamed my name. You get the idea of love with the father. And so God, at a fundamental level, is a loving father. That's, that's a beautiful and experiential truth. Um, the last reason this is important, and we'll get to the son here, is that it keeps us from doing something potentially quite dangerous in our understanding of the Trinity. You see, let me paint a picture for you. I have already stated that we have three persons and one God, all right? The oneness of God is his substance or essence, all right? If you, if you may, you could say the what of God, right? Now, that would not be wrong to say that, but notice what happens once you say the what of God it becomes impersonal. Yes, God is power. Yes, God is, um, well, love is a nice relational quality. But, but you might think of God in, in the sense of being, okay, he, he's, he's eternal, he's immutable, he's simple, all these, all these different things. And you might picture that this essence lies up and above and beyond Father, Son, and Spirit. But when you understand that God is Father, or that the Father is normatively God, then you understand that God is fundamentally personal. 
There's, no, there's nothing impersonal. There's no force up and above and behind God. All right? And in fact, uh, Cornelius Van Til, this is one of his hobby horses. And, and uh, recently, uh, a good theologian by the name of uh, Lane Tipton has written a book on Van Til that I would like to get my hands on at some point um, because I've only dabbled in, in Van Til's doctrine of the Trinity. But uh, one of Van Til's problems is that he would, he would sometimes put it like this. Maybe I'll just tell you his formation. He would sometimes say that God is one person and three persons. Now, if that's all you're saying about God, that's actually really problematic because you haven't distinguished the difference between how he's one and how he's three. But what he was reacting against is this idea that somehow you've got the three persons and then you've got this invisible sort of floating essence up there above and beyond. No. And the thing that sort of tethers it together is the fact that God is father. Beautiful doctrine. Let's consider the son. And uh, in particular, the eternal generation of the son. All right. This is, this is technical language, eternal generation. Um, and it means that the son is born of the father, or you, you could even say birth, but not in time. Eternal. All right. Uh, and in fact, some theologians, I think this is probably good. Some theologians have stated, we probably, it'd be best to speak of this, this begetting, not as an act, which sort of connotes one thing happening at one point in, in history, because of course we're creatures bound by time. We tend to think in those terms, but as an activity. Um, although on the other end of the spectrum, you would want to avoid saying that the sun is being begotten because it seems then that he is in process, right? There's, there's some, there's some eventuality to the sun that hasn't happened yet. All right. So trying to find quite the right language is to this great mystery is sometimes a little bit hard. Uh, and that shouldn't surprise us. God is God. He's above our, our, our complete comprehension, even though we can understand him in, in true ways. Although of course not complete ways as we have considered already. One of the questions that comes with the doctrine of eternal generation, though, is whether it's biblical. Where, where would we find the doctrine of eternal generation? Um, one of the places that the early church fathers saw it, and, and this would be this would probably be one of the only places in, um, in these series of lectures where I'm going to disagree with something that the early church fathers took as almost as granted. Um, in general, I think the early church fathers were amazing at their doctrine of the Trinity, how they worked it out, where they, you know, where they looked to in scripture, their, their insight. Um, but when it came to Psalm 2, verse 7, uh, this is my son today, I, no, yeah, this is my son today, I have begotten you. Um, that verse in Psalm 2, 7, they took as referring often to the eternal begottenness of the Father. Here's the problem. The problem is that in the New Testament, it is it's really hard to, to make it mean that. In the New Testament, almost all the times, if not all the times, that Psalm 2-7 is quoted, it's in reference to Christ's resurrection or ascension. All right? Uh, and there are multiple passages that, would, uh, that you could cite. Uh, Acts 13-13, Romans 1-4, Colossians 1-18, Hebrews 1-5, Hebrews 5-5. There are some that are a little bit ambiguous, but, uh, but you know, all of them would fall under... Uh, more or less under this idea of Christ being sort of 
um, anointed as son, recognized as son, enthroned as son. Um, a place where we have perhaps better biblical basis uh, for the eternal begottenness of the Son is in the word monogenes uh, in the New Testament Greek. And you, you encounter this, you can turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, 14. Now, there are about nine uses, not about, there are nine uses of um, this Greek word in the New Testament. Um, several of which, I think five, if I'm not mistaken, are in the writings of John. Um, and of course, one of the challenges is whether John uses this word in, in, a, in a, a different way at all from the other apostolic authors. I, I, think, I think he does, actually, to at least to some, some degree. But in John 1, 14, uh, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the, and the ESV has, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So another example is down in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the, and then again in the ESV, the only God who is at the father's side, he has made him known. However, um, modern translations have tended to translate this word, this Greek word monogenes, as only in the sense of unique. God is the unique son of God. And that's what you have here in the ESV and many other um, modern translations. I think the NIV is the same. However, um, in the older translations and the early church fathers, and in fact, the Nicene Creed, it's pretty clear. Um, take this to mean the, um, the only begotten son of God. So not referring to the fact that he is of one class, but he is of one generation, one birth. All right. And that's the, that's around this idea. Then you've got the idea of eternal begottenness. Um, I think, I think the older authors get it right. And we're not going to get into all the reasons why I think that is. Um, my Greek is almost non-existent, but uh, you know, I can sometimes track with some of the, um, yeah, some of the, some of the Greek discussions that others have, but um, one of the things that's very helpful for me is to see that actually the early church fathers almost to a person understood the Greek this way. And that's a very strong argument in my, uh, in my estimation. So um, it's interesting. We'll get into a little bit later into a modern controversy that I've just barely alluded to in the past lectures called EFS, the Eternal Functional Subordination of the Son. And it's fascinating that um, a really good theologian that I believe you are using for your apologetics class. No, no, sorry, that's John Frame, my, my mistake. Uh, that you're using for your systematics, that's Grudem. Um, he's actually changed his mind on this point. Uh, he, he didn't consider that this word meant eternal begottenness. And the problem for him is actually that he, for a while, he was actually denying the eternal generation of the son. And he has come to change his mind about that. And he has come to change his mind about part of that is uh, his, his changing understanding of what this Greek word means. So that's fascinating. But there are lots of modern scholars that would go the other way, including uh, D.A. Carson um, and, and, and many others that would say, no, it means unique. We're reading too much into it. Um, but, but I don't think so. <laughs> but 
even if you don't have this word referring to the eternal generation, you very quickly, from a theological perspective, you quickly arrive at the doctrine of eternal generation of the Son. Why? Well, because we know that he is of the Father. The scriptures speak of the word Son. This could not be clearer. And so you've got some analogy between, you know, human sons and human fathers that cannot be tracked completely onto the eternal father and the eternal son, but at least have bear some uh, analogy. You've also got the fact that multiple places that may not have that, those familiar terms still speak with the language of derivation. So what do I mean by that? He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians chapter one. The son is of. Uh, Hebrews chapter one. He is the radiance of God's glory. So the son is derived from the father. He's the exact imprint of his nature. All right. And, and once you have established the fact that the son is derived from the father in whatever fashion you, you know, you first conceive of that, the only way for the son not to be a creature is if he is eternally begotten rather than in time. If the father begets the son in time, if there was a time that the son was not, he is not eternal. He is not God. He's a creature. So very quickly, um, even if you can't, it's, it's very much like the word or idea of the Trinity, even though the word you could argue may or may not be used in the, in the New Testament. I would argue it is. Uh, in fact, I would argue that even there's some Old Testament passages that would allude to the eternal begottenness of the Son. Um, in, in Malachi, for instance, uh, it speaks of his goings forth being from of old. Uh, that, or is that Micah? That might be, that might be Micah. Yes, Micah 5.2. Um, that, uh, that it's very clear that you quickly arrive at the doctrine of eternal generation. Um, so you have the son bearing this relation to the father. You've also got the idea that the father can't be father unless he has a son. Now we're going to, that's an interesting idea. And that's one that actually we're going to talk about when we get to medieval theology. Because there's an interesting question that will really hurt your brain is, let me see if I can even frame it the right way here. Is the father father because he has a son? Or is God the father because he is um, ungenerate? Okay, because he doesn't have a beginning. Right? It, it, we'll, we'll get into that. If, that. if that makes your brain hurt right now, it's okay. We'll, we'll explain both the question and maybe even arrive at an answer. Um, because actually there, there's something good that comes out of that discussion, as, as strange as that may seem, and as, as much as that may seem like, you know, how many angels can you put on the head of a pin? Um, let's get back to scripture. Turn with me to John 17, because what I want to do here in finishing up on the doctrine of the Son is to point you to um, some aspects of the Son's work and how he is revealed with in redemption. Um, and so in John 17, what I want us to see here, and I'm, uh, I'm going to, you know, just give a very large, quick overview here. I'm not going to be stepping through this 
with in much detail. But what I want us to see in John 17 are two ways in which the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit work um, in, in two different triads, okay? So the first triad, if you read through John 17, that you see the first sort of pattern that you see within, um, within redemption is the idea that the Father sends the Son who sends the Holy Spirit into people, and then the Son then returns and ascends to the Father to go back to his glory that he had with the Father in the beginning. All right? So there is a, you could call this a stepping down and a return. Okay? Um, and in this, in this, you've also got the idea that in the ascension of the Son from the earth to heaven, that he takes us with him. That we join, being united to the Son, we join with the Godhead, not in quite the same way as the Son is. Uh, we don't ever become God, where you know, we don't share his essence. Nevertheless, we are one with him and we ascend with the Son into God in the heavens. All right. So this is kind of an enfolding pattern. Uh, it goes out, it comes back in. All right. There is another uh, pattern, and these patterns overlap in, in John 17. And it is an enlarging pattern, or you might say it's an outward pattern. Okay. And in this pattern, again, the Father sends the Son, and the Son sends the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And then in the latter part of John 17, you've got the, you've got the apostles then who are going to preach the word to other people who don't yet know you. And then there's even, you could argue this point, but then it even uses the word world in relationship to others who will come to know them. So what you have is you've got the fact that, you know, from father to son, to Holy Spirit, to apostles, to the people that they will preach, and on and on and on it goes. All right? So you've got this, this outward um, progression or, uh, or pattern. So this is, this is important because what I'm going to suggest, I'm only going to suggest it this evening. I'm going to try to prove it probably later on in the lectures is that these two ways of thinking about, uh, or really that are revealed for us in scripture concerning redemption actually tell us something about the Holy spirit, that the Holy spirit actually has, <laughs> I'm going to argue later on that these actually are reflected in his two names, Holy and spirit, that there's two different things that the Holy spirit does, right? One is to connect everything back into God, all right? From Father to Son to Holy Spirit, and then everything becomes one in the Holy Spirit, all right? The other is from Father to Son to Holy Spirit, and then outwards, out into all of creation, all of redemption, and just keeping on, keeping on on going until the end of time. 
all right? So again, uh, I'm gonna try to prove this later on, but just a few words on the, on the Holy Spirit before we um, take a break going into our uh, next lecture. Um, in regards to the Holy Spirit, I wanna, I wanna share a couple other um, patterns. In regards to the eternal processions, the Holy Spirit stands after the Father and the Son as third. All right? We, we know this. We know this. We know this even from the baptismal formula. Into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, now, the interesting thing is that there are places in Scripture where that pattern is not the same. All right? There are places where you've got, you've got a different pattern in Scripture. Nevertheless, there is no question that is the normative pattern. And that is the normative pattern because, of of course, it it fits that the the Son is from the Father and the Holy Spirit is from the Father. Or you could say, I've argued, slightly better way is to say from the Father through the Son. So the Holy Spirit is is third. And to reverse that would actually be heretical. To say the Holy Spirit is first, that would be heretical. Let me just give you one example practical application of this. If you are in a church that everything is always and constantly about the Holy Spirit and rarely about the Son or the Father, you've got problems. Why? Well, because the Holy Spirit is third and that matters. It matters because in scripture we see it fits. It's fitting that the Holy Spirit actually shines the spotlight on the Son. Right? And, and yes, the, the Holy Spirit does have his particular glory. We'll get to that. Uh, nevertheless, don't reverse that. Um, we, we, ought to, we ought to glorify the Son in a special way, and we ought to glorify the Father in a particular way. And yes, even the Holy Spirit does have his particular glory. But um, as we develop these lectures, I think we'll see this a little bit more clearly. Now, the interesting thing is that in regard to the in, incarnation, So I've said, it's Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. You can't change that. That's that's the order of the eternal processions or eternal relations. The Son uh, proceeds via generation, Holy Spirit via spiration, breathed out. Now, here's the interesting thing. In the incarnation, we see a little bit of a different progression. In the incarnation we see that the Holy Spirit actually stands between the Father and the Son. Let me give you some examples. In the incarnation itself, in the conception of Jesus, it is the Holy Spirit that comes from the Father that comes upon Mary, and the Son is conceived. We see a very similar pattern in the baptism of Jesus. Son is on earth. The Father sends the Holy Spirit to come upon the Son. It is, in fact, similar at the resurrection. The Father sends, even though the resurrection is attributed to all three members of the Trinity in different places, the normative way in which it speaks about this, for instance, in Romans 1, is that the Father raises the Son by the Spirit. All right? So, there has been a sense throughout church history, starting with the early church fathers, developed amongst the medieval theologians, that there is a sense in which, even though the Holy Spirit is after the Son in one sense, there is another sense in which he is between the Father and the Son. 
We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But Gregory uh, Nazianzen, um, which is one of the early church fathers that I have suggested you read, in, in his oration 31, um, verse 8, he says, uh, he, he speaks about this. Uh, and that the, the, the Holy Spirit is between the Father and the Son. Um, and and it's be, it is this idea of the Holy Spirit really being between everything and knitting all things together. And so we ought to understand the Holy Spirit's role then is to shine the spotlight on the first and second persons. We'll, we'll speak a little bit more about that but then also to bind all things together. And indeed, this is why there is a particular emphasis in the scriptures on the spirit when it comes to even the gathering of the fellowship of believers, to the unity that we share. Don't break the, the spirit of, of the fellowship that we have because it's the Holy Spirit that is particularly, um, I wouldn't say particularly interested in that, but he is given uh, as an emphasis of that uh, spirit of fellowship. And uh, just by way of one last application, when we pray to God, it is not surprising then that we are given the Holy Spirit that we can connect with God. The Holy Spirit is that connecting aspect of God.